everybody, welcome to Doctor Who Podcast. I appreciate you guys being here supporting this podcast. We have some great guests and very interesting interviews. I hope, uh, if you have any suggestions, by the way, send them over to contact at drdrew.com. And head over there also for After Dark and Adam and Drew and other things we're doing over there. And do not forget that streaming show, drdrew.tv. Uh, there's no doubt this audience would find that material very interesting. It's very different than all this. We're sort of uh, meeting Dr. Kelly Victory on Wednesdays. It's, again, it's 3 o'clock Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Pacific. are interviewing some of the, the people that have not been heard <laughs> to see what we can learn from them. Sometimes over their skis, sometimes I learn something. But as always, that's the process is you, you thump on things and uh, take a look at what people are thinking and what the data suggests and go from there uh, and be very, very uh, cautious and skeptical as you move forward. Today, I have Dr. Dave Rabin. He is a psychiatrist. Uh, he's got lots of interesting things he is working on, and he and I have shared uh, our love of interpersonal neurobiology and all the uh, neurobiological correlates with addiction and situations like that. He has uh, a very interesting instrument called uh, Apollo. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at, whoop, Dave, am I get this right? At Dr. David Rabin. Am I getting that right? Yep. And doctor is Dr. Dave, David Rabin. And Apollo, Apollo Neuro, under, Apollo underscore Neuro on Instagram and Twitter. Apollo underscore Neuro. So today I want to get into some of the newer stuff that uh, psychiatry is uh, looking down the barrel of. I have some really fine colleagues who are extraordinarily excited, particularly by psilocybin and some of these hallucinogens and some of the data that's out there. I, as someone that has worked in the world where I've seen lots of injury from these things, they scare that they scare me until we know for sure the risk benefit and you know ratios. And so I, I sit, I get worried about it. I know for sure there will be therapeutic use for sure. Uh, I just don't know when to pull the trigger and how much and when and this sort of thing. So let me just ask this just general question to start out with. Is academic psychiatry on board with all this or or, or is it all sort of rogue? Not rogue, because psychiatry has always been, you know, I worked on psychiatric hospital for 35 yeah. years. Psychiatry has always been because it's such an, it's a, people don't understand, it's relatively new science, psychiatry, in, the, in terms of how we practice it. Especially and, What's that? Especially the biological understanding. Well, that's what I'm meaning when I say that. I mean, you know, psych people don't realize that psychoanalysis had a grip on American psychiatry for like 50 years, and we didn't return to medicine until the 80s, really. And as such, I notice that psychiatrists are usually very aggressive with new therapeutics. That's just generally their sort of orientation. Is the academic infrastructure behind some of these things? Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you so much for having me back, by the way. It's always a pleasure to to chat with you um, because, you know, you've you've really been I, I always admired your approach to the way that you translate some of these really interesting and complex uh, medical terminology information to your audience. So really appreciated that. Um, and yeah, I, th I think the in short, the academic field is coming along uh, because of people like Rick Doblin and you know, Roland Griffiths and Matt Johnson and Robin Card Harris and these great folks at Hopkins and and Yale, Ben Kelmendi and Rachel Yehuda at Sinai, right? All of these people who are world-renowned scientists who originally came from, and physicians, psychiatrists who came from a non-psychedelic uh, background often, and now are spent, have spent the last 30 years pioneering these treatments in Western medical paradigms, not just in nature and not just in the indigenous tribal cultural setting and what the what we've seen now is fast forward you know to where we are today ketamine is the only legal psychedelic medicine that's available for use in clinical practice it's an anesthetic and it's been used for for 60 to 70 years as a as an anesthetic for children women evacuating soldiers from battlefield animals that can't tolerate anesthesia well like horses and so Ketamine was just by chance discovered to have psychedelic properties, but it actually is very effective at helping people recover by if, when used in the proper setting, as you kind of alluded to, it amplifies the patient or client sense of safety that is facilitated by the, you know, what you and I describe as like the doctor patient relationship, right? Like yeah. one of the biggest challenges with trauma 
And I think, you know, the caveat is these medicines need to be used respectfully and properly and according to guidelines. And I think your hesitance is in the right place because we don't have guidelines yet that are. And, and by the way, when I talked to Rick Dobler, I think I talked to you right after Rick last time, and he is extremely cautious. And, you know, he, he only, you know, concludes and uses what he knows in, in evidence, has great, good evidence, strong evidence basis for it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we're the same way. You know, I think if we don't, if we don't look at the evidence and and read our history, right. And know what's worked in the past and know what hasn't, we're doomed to repeat it. So the goal is how do we, how do we learn what everybody's done before so that we can understand, you know, what's worked, what hasn't worked, you know, did massive dissemination of psychedelics in the 60s and 70s work on a, (laughs) without education or people get accidentally hurt Oh boy. Because they didn't understand what they were doing. I saw lots of that. I literally, right. I had patients that were chronically psychiatrically ill, but it was of a quality that was so um, disabling. Many of them ended up in nursing homes. Right. It, it was sort of neuropsychiatric, you know, and, and these, and these people were backup singers in rock bands that toured around and, you know, did their psychedelics and they were so cool in the sixties, not so cool in the eighties when they're, when the, the biology came to roost. Right. And I, and I think that's an interesting, you know, a lot of these folks we're talking about from the sixties and seventies, especially the backup singers, the frontline singers and the performers. A lot of these people were doing a lot more than just psychedelics. Right. So there's, there was a huge party culture. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I only saw the, you know, I saw lots of drug addicts, lots of drug use. The ones that ended up in nursing homes had a big psychedelic LSD, particularly. That's the drug that scares me. I've never seen any, I've never seen real injury from psilocybin, for instance. Yeah. Definitely never seen injury from ketamine. Never seen, mm, I've seen some stuff from really heavy MDMA use, like really heavy, like not something you would use in a therapeutic context. Yeah. Um, but well, see, just to echo what you're saying, yeah. see, I've seen all of it. I yeah. see about 50% of my practice is taking care of people who have had challenging, unresolved, or what we call bad trips, right? Yeah. Just can't come back on their own and they don't have support to help them and they don't know where they are, or what's going on anymore. And so it's borderline psychotic, right? Yes. That's actually the the single biggest risk that we take when we're using psychedelic medicines as a, as a culture is that when we, if we don't understand that they amplify all parts of us, not just the pleasant parts and not just the unpleasant parts, but they're non-specific amplifiers of awareness, as Dr. Stan Groff, famous psychiatrist, described in the fifties uh, and sixties, that they amplify what we bring in. And so, if we're bringing in disorganized thinking, if we're bringing in lack of confidence and self-esteem, fear or threat, and our environment is encouraging of those kinds of feelings and not supportive then the medicine can actually amplify that and it can dissociate us further and make us feel less connected to the world and ourselves and worsen what we call the delusion or like the delusion that I am not okay. Right. And I am not worthy in this world or worthy of love. And if you transition that into an approach where you come in with gratitude and safety, where the clinician patient or guide patient relationship is the ultimate safe role model, then the client can remember, the patient can remember, hey, this is what it feels like to feel safe and trusting when yeah. I might not have trusted myself in years, which is, you know, at the root of addiction and trauma, as you well know. And then we can role model trust for the client. And then the medicine amplifies the trust and safety. And that's what results in the long-term therapeutic benefit. So the yeah, I, I, I always saw my job, you know, I my specialty was, you know, the early part of treatment with, you know, polydiagnosed medically and psychiatric severe drug addicts. And in addition to getting them medically and psychiatrically squared, my other job, as I saw it, was to get them into the frame of a relationship, to teach them that they could be felt, they could be safe, it's possible to be in this frame. And I, I, will, I got so many things I want to talk to you about, but this, I'll just go down this path for a second. And, and one of the ways that I got good at getting them in was responding to whatever came out of my body. In other words... I would say things without thinking about it <laughs> and they were never wrong. <laughs> they would just, I just got so used to attuning deeply because the addict was blah, 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 blah. And I, I, I just wouldn't listen. I would just, I would listen. I would get the, you know, the, what they were saying, but, but I would just respond with whatever came out and what came out oftentimes was, you know, well, that's bullshit or you're so full of shit or give me a, you know, 
how about what about that that's you just you glossed over that let's let's go down that path and and that ability to respond body to body which is what harkens back to our mother child system that builds our emotional regulatory system in the first place at just touching that teaches them that somebody can do that and and i always felt that was very important and i love the idea that ketamine is expanding on that now is that is that accurate yeah, it, you nailed it, right? I think that's exactly what it is that we're doing for people. And yeah. ketamine is is the first that's entering into, to answer your first question, entering into the Western medical, clinical, it, what we call interventional psychiatry environment. So applying a medicine and therapy well, together. Well, we, right. We used to just give the ketamine in six sessions, right? That improves mood too, just that. It, it does, but it seems like what we're seeing now in the literature, and, and by the way, still, I think 90% of ketamine providers are still just providing medicine only without therapy. Uh-huh. I think as we're seeing in the therapy field, as we're doing more studies of therapy plus the medicine and seeing that if you prepare somebody, even if it's just for an hour or two before, and then you sit with them during, and then you prepare that, and then you integrate or you unpack what comes up after, that they're actually able to get require less medicine long-term and sustain the benefits. And we just published a really interesting article, um, review article in Journal of Effective Disorders that came out a couple months ago uh, by the Board of Medicine and um, Ali Fiducia, who's a very well-regarded MDMA researcher and neuropharmacologist who, you know, really calling for a gold standard of care, best practices in psychedelic medicine and reviewing, presenting a review of all the evidence that says, look, whether we're looking at SSRIs for depression or anxiety or whether we're looking at antipsychotics for psychotic disorder, or whether we're looking at psychedelics for PTSD and depression and anxiety, psychotherapy invariably always makes the outcomes better. It God, we've always- known that a long time. No, no, <laughs> it's so weird that we have to say it again. Right? Why <laughs> yeah. would psychedelics be any different? You know, yeah. the challenge we're facing as a medical field right now is that the financial models, the yeah. economic models yeah. of care yeah. don't align with an outcomes-driven focus, which is right. what actually gets us to a healed community. Right. I'm also looking at a study that you sent me, ketamine matches ECT efficacy for treating major depression. And um, I just want to say, you know, people think shock therapy. Oh my God, shock therapy is is a very effective therapeutic. It's only obviously reserved for very severe cases where people's lives are in danger, but it works. And putting ketamine against ECT is a pretty powerful statement. Is that with therapy in this study? No. So that's what's interesting, right? So ECT typically in most electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy studies, and by the way, two of our most tried and true technologies in psychiatry that work or tools that work to treat things better than anything we've ever seen evidence-wise, not to mention there there are side effects, but those two things are electroshock therapy, which has been around for over a hundred years. I think it was co-invented by like Michael Faraday, who invented the original capacitor that allowed for us to shock ourselves enough to kind of like reset the brain. Um, and then the other one is lithium, which is, you know, a natural organic compound that's used mineral that's in the soil that's used for bipolar uh, disorder and mood stabilization. So electroshock therapy in particular is very interesting because it's inducing a state in the brain that causes what we call like a dissociative. So a separation of mind and body through seizure. So you're inducing a seizure in a controlled setting which causes a period, a very temporary period of hyperactivation in the brain, which then is followed by a period of underactivation that allows people to sort of regain perspective. But it has a lot of side effects. It has memory issues that follow short, especially short, short-term memory issues that are really disturbing for people. And it has a lot of stigma from the past that we are well aware of. And, and it's not particularly soothing. And so ketamine is really interesting because ketamine and electroshock therapy are both used for treatment resistant depression as probably their and suicidal depression as probably their major indication. Mm-hmm. Ketamine is soothing. It doesn't have the stigma. It makes people feel better and the effects can last longer, if, especially when combined with psychotherapy and you don't necessarily need it for life. And we haven't answered all of those questions yet, but it's really exciting as a field to have and paradigm shifting to have tools that we can start to bring in that really change the way we think about approaching mental illness by not just distracting or numbing people to their feelings, but getting to the core, right? How do we help people feel safe enough to reevaluate what it means to be me and to be okay with that?
This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Pettisey. I love hearing people's stories of resilience and grit. This is why I created this podcast. We are very excited to welcome Jim Gaffigan, Yasmin Mohammed, Glenn Beck, Tim Dillon, Abigail Schreier, Jeff Garland, Ayan Hirsi Ali, Sam Harris, Heather Hying, Jonah Goldberg, Ben Shapiro, Glenn Greenwald, Sarah Shahi, Colin Quinn. If there's a culture of victimhood, then let's tell stories of grit and survival. Subscribe and listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It, it, it's interesting uh, when I hear you talk that you you combine, and I'm wondering if this is common in the psychiatry right now, you're combining a psychological frame with a biological frame uh and that is a relatively new thing i would say uh am i right about that yeah i think that's but that's where the field's going right now so i I mean it's called it's called it's called using everything we know and integrating it exactly Yeah, because i'm not used to my psychiatric colleagues speaking quite i've always personally you know, I worked in addiction and, and you have to master all that stuff. You have to have family systems, you have to have all, everything. Yep. You've got to have familiarity with all of it. And so I, I, you know, I had to, I had to cherry pick who I, I had to bring the psychiatrist in just for the med manager. I had to bring a psychologist in for the therapy. And it, it always seemed odd to me. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's not the best model, right? I think I'm, I'm a particularly unusual psychiatrist and I, because I do predominantly psychotherapy. So I'm a general adult psychiatrist. I write prescriptions. I do psychedelic assisted therapy and medication assisted therapy, but I do holistic integrative therapy because what we realize is that what are the things, you know, what are the things that make people better fastest and help people actually take what they're learning in therapy and then make it stick and it's the same things that we that you're talking about that everybody's talking about that helps our bodies get into a state of healing which is good quality restful sleep daily medita- daily like health and wellness practices like mindfulness meditation yoga breath work soothing touch soothing music healthy amounts of movement and good nutrition right but sleep is at the fa- at the core foundation of all of that because sleep is where we reconsolidate and store and organize all of our memories. And so if we're not getting good, deep, restful sleep, a lot of that stuff we're learning during the day is just like not sticking, right? And so then how do we create a foundation where the body effectively is ready to learn and neuroplasticity is the norm, right? Learning Mm -hmm. and neuroplasticity are the same thing. How does the brain continue to develop over time? And what we've seen from the last 20 years of neuroscience research that's really exciting is as above, so below, right? When we have a change in the brain, a change in our thinking process, there is a change in the brain and then a change in the cells that interact in the brain and a change in every organ system in the body and the way we function because our thoughts and our, our minds and our bodies are intimately connected. And that separation that I think started with maybe Descartes in the, you know, 1800s is actually caused a lot of confusion in the field and it's caused us to separate therapy and biology and separate psychoanalysis and biological psychiatry it's caused a lot of rifts mm-hmm. if you're physically ill and you don't treat it you get mentally ill and if you're mentally ill and you don't treat it you can get physically ill and we know that so that's really the direction the field's going yeah we you know well we start with our patients hungry angry lonely tired that's just where you start and just deal with that stuff first and by the same token i um to your point about the the getting sick if if your brain's not right or vice versa i for the first mm, 10 years i worked in a psychiatric hospital i was doing medical services where i would do you know everyone has to get a medical evaluation because uh, i would say 30 percent of the time there was a medical problem undiagnosed that was underneath causing the depression or causing because somehow there was a medical issue or there was a medical issue caused by the psychiatric state or the medication. That was a common thing too. Oh yeah. The medication was often a problem, uh, especially back. This is like eighties and nineties when I was really doing that stuff actively. Still is. Still yeah, is. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like I was saying at the outset, psychiatry is aggressive with the medication. And so you have an instrument, the Apollo instrument that helps with sleep, right? That, that part that people really struggle with very often. Yeah, it helps with sleep at the foundation, but it really helps with getting ourselves in a place to feel 
our feelings because when we feel our feelings, then we, we are able to adapt to stress and adjust to sleep and change states more easily. It's when, and this, you know, goes back to ancient Hippocratic medicine, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, as you know, or, you know, the father, founding father of Western medicine, but also ancient Buddhist and yoga, yogic philosophies, which is that resistance to what is creates suffering. Mm. And that includes our feelings. Mm. We are feeling machines, right? Why do people abuse substances? Oftentimes when we see in our practice, it's to avoid or distract from feeling because those mm-hmm. feelings are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so, or they remind us of something really uncomfortable. So studying all of that and recognizing the power that our clinician, patient, doctor, patient relationship has on people's healing and our empathy and recognizing that psychedelic medicines actually amplify that process. And we've been studying, I've been studying the mechanism of MDMA and ketamine for the last several years, uh, and actually had some great findings to show that MDMA consistent with what others had found is actually reversing the epigenetic markers of trauma on our DNA Mm. in the safety and fear response pathway, the cortisol pathway. Mm. Right. And so that has given us a ton of inf- evidence that says, okay, well, maybe the dr- the medicine like MDMA is amplifying safety. Maybe ketamine is amplifying the safety of this relationship so you can trust yourself again, but maybe it's not required, right? MDMA is going to cost ten dollars to $14,000 for one round of treatment over 12 weeks. And most people can't afford that. And it's not for everyone. And it's you know, not going to be reimbursed by insurance for a while and it's hard to access. So we thought, well, if we can figure out how MDMA works on the brain, what pathways is it targeting? What's being activated and how is that facilitating change for people? Then perhaps we can tap into that same safety cascade with other things. And it turns out that soothing touch is by far the fastest way for us to get into a safe state in our bodies. And by safe, I mean physiologically safe. So when our stress response system turns down or off and our recovery parasympathetic vagal system turns on, our heart rate slows down, our blood pressure comes down, our breath rate comes down, and our digestion and our immunity and our reproduction all go up because our bodies are recognizing that they're safe enough to prioritize things that are not required for survival. And so uh, we figured out how to effectively tap into that pathway through understanding safety and what MDMA is doing. And then we created this tool, Apollo, that I'm wearing on my chest that you can wear anywhere on your body that delivers soothing vibrations to the skin that are felt like a hug or felt like a purring cat on your body or somebody holding your hand on a bad day that is like a song for your nervous system. And it helps to tone the vagal system and remind us that we're safe enough to maybe take our time and, you know, make better decisions and, and fall asleep. Cause sleep is also a very vulnerable place to be for us. Does it help the sleep hygiene, the sleep cycling? That is the most, that we, we developed it originally at the university of Pittsburgh for people to use during the day, mm-hmm. uh, originally working with vets with PTSD and addiction disorders. But interestingly enough, when we like many products, you release them to the world and they're used differently than you thought originally. And people started using Apollo for sleep more than anything else. And so they'll use it to, it has eight vibes, so you can choose from energy, creative, social flow, uh, deep focus, then recover, which is like five minutes of moderate breathing, calm, which is like 20 minutes of deep breathing, relax, which is kind of like uh, a deep unwind. It's unwind like cannabis indica or a glass of whiskey and then sleep. And so people will schedule those throughout the day and they'll schedule it to wind them down to put th- and put them to bed to wake them up in the morning instead of an alarm clock and then to keep them energized during the day so they drink less coffee and rely on less substances and that regulates your circadian cycle for you and that ultimately we've seen improves sleep up to 30 minutes a night and people who use it regularly over three months and improves deep and REM sleep significantly as well which is very very interesting. very interesting so you know you we've just we've mentioned several times trauma now today and it's you know finally uh, the other thing that uh, mental health and medicine has caught up with is the impact of trauma particularly childhood trauma uh you know i don't know if people remember but uh, in the 1990s that was the decade of the brain and we got much in a very descartian style or cartesian style we got very hooked you know very focused on the thing in the cranium the thing in the cranium is embedded in a body. We sort of left that behind. And this instrument you're talking about is, is the bodily based component of uh, what our central nervous system is doing. 
and you know, I, I we still don't know. You know, I, you know, we have these people call them chakras or solar plexus or whatever these these we have these rests of nervous tissue in our body. We still don't know what they're doing. They're like little mini brains throughout our body that process the autonomic nervous system, the automatic part of our nervous system, and uh, and that's what you're talking about attuning to. And there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, obviously we've said the Apollo ketamine, we're talking about entering the frame of relating and all these things that, that you and I are very dedicated to, but people are doing other things too. And I, I just want to get some input from you about some of these other therapeutics. For instance, I interviewed a guy that's doing stellate ganglion blockade for resistant uh, PTSD, and he claims 100% efficacy. I, I don't know. But uh, there's that. I wonder if you have anything to say about that. And then two things like EMDR, which Apollo to me seems sort of like tapping into that same kind of mechanistic, uh, you know, um, workaround, let's say. But those two things, what do you say? Yeah, that's, that's, those are great questions. So I think I'll take EMDR first. So the way to think about treatment for trauma is that trauma to give you a modern definition for everybody, right? A modern updated neuroscience-based evidence-based definition or description. So trauma, the way to think about it is one or multiple intense, high density stimulation, lots of stimulation, meaningful, meaning self-referential, means something to me, experiences that we have over time that are perceived as threat, actual or perceived, but doesn't matter if they're actually threatening, they're perceived as threatening to us for which we are not given adequate support after, right? So one or multiple intense, meaningful experiences that we interpret or perceive as threatening for which we are not supported after. And, and to me, the, the threat part, I mean, I kind of turn up the volume on that part. It's like, you know, really threatens your beingness in, in, in whether psychic or physically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that's why it's really important to reconceptualize the mo- like a modern def- definition or description of trauma, because we also need a modern description and definition of healing mm. because with psychedelic medicines, we're actually seeing people get better long-term with just a few doses of medicine and therapy, and they don't have to continue treatment forever, like our current paradigm. So we need another definition when we're seeing trauma reversed, right? Yeah. So if trauma can be reversed, which we've never actually thought that it was possible other than in extinction, fear, extinction, animal models, right? then can we track that, which we now know we can, and does that give us a new modern definition of healing, which is maybe one or multiple intense, meaningful experience we perceive as safe, where we have support, but they're still challenging. Both challenging can be challenging experiences. Mm. One is perceived as threatening without support, and one is perceived as safe with support, Mm. right? Challenging with support. Chat, both, Safe, challenging both. with safety and support. Yes. Right. Challenging yeah. with safety and support versus yeah. challenging without, without safety yeah. and without support. Yeah. Right. And I think that is the, the key because when that, though, when that trauma happens, when that negative or that, you know, intense, meaningful, threatening experience happens and we don't have support, two things go on in our bodies. Number one, our bodies immediately learn to divert all resources, all blood, oxygen, waste removal, et cetera, to our skeletal muscles, our heart, our lungs, our motor cortex of our brain, our fear center, all the parts of our brains and bodies that are to get us out of a immediate life-threatening situation. Because our bodies don't know the difference between too many emails and our kids screaming and too many responsibilities in the news <clears throat> than a bear chasing us in the jungle. Our bodies are just responding to perceived threat. So that <clears throat> is why stellate ganglion block works. Because stellate ganglion block is, is the stellate ganglion in the back of the neck is literally the the part of the the core of the sympathetic fight or flight nervous system, the stress response survival system that is outside of the brain. So when you block that with a anesthetic or an injection of some sort, then you're just preventing the stress response system from activating, which has side of, it's not without side effects because you're not going to be able to respond to threat adequately in a real situation if you blocked the part of your body and brain that is responsible for transmitting those survival signals. Mm-hmm. But in people who can't feel anything or don't remember how to feel safe and they can't feel anything but survival signals, for those kinds of people, blocking the stellate ganglion can give them you know one to three months of relief and then they have to go back and do it again. <laughs> Thank you.
Globally, humans are facing massive problems that are widely ignored by governments and the media. Like personal space invaders. I've had it with these couples that sit on the same side of the booth. Yak mouths. Stupid stick figure bumper stickers. Almond milk. You cannot milk an almond. Hi, I'm Jennifer. And I'm Angie. We call her Pumps, and we are the hosts of I've Had It. Pumps, tell the listener where they can find us. Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nailed it. See you next Tuesday. Back to the the body keeping the score, as we we say, the famous uh, book. By, I believe it was uh, Bessel van der Kolk. Van der Kolk. Uh, it, how does that happen? What's the current thinking about how the? But, but two things fascinate me: the the recurrent body, you know, experiencing of trauma, and then repetition compulsion. Those those two things seem non adaptive evolutionarily, so they intrigue me. Yeah, I. So I think what's interesting is, so you remember, as I said earlier, we we're talking about as above, so below, Yeah. right? So this is a phrase that I love because it comes from Pythagoras who discovered the circle of fifths, the modern way that we make music. And he also discovered uh, a lot of the ways that we, that sounds interact with each other by looking at the relationships between the stars and the planets. Very, very interesting fellow, uh, very famous mathematician. And so what is happening, if you think about this this phrase, as above, so below, when we experience a, a powerful, intense experience like a trauma, what Dr. Rachel Yehuda showed was that the, uh, who's the director of trauma and psychedelic research at Sinai now, is that when we experience these uh, traumatic events, there are changes. The learning doesn't just happen in our brains in terms of the way our neurons are talking to each other and that does happen. Our neurons from our fear center are now talking more probably to our identity center, which is talking more towards our emotional brain, which is saying, hey, don't be empathetic right now. You could be in danger. You don't want to empathize with your enemy, right? You want to get yeah. out of here, get to safety, right? So that process is going on on the neural neuronal level in terms of the way that they're talking to each other. <laughs> but the what Eric Kandel found, who won the Nobel Prize in 2000, for discovering the origins of learning and memory is that we learn the same way as ancient sea snails, which means that when we experience fear and threat or safety, we're building these new neural connections. And as the neurons get tighter, they actually have to make more protein to build the scaffolding, the infrastructure that allows them to talk. So just like building a new building or building a new room in your house, you have to actually add things structural components like drywall and and maybe some wood framing and things like that to get that part of the of the room to look and act and function the way you want it to. So the brain is actually doing the same thing and to do that it has to change its DNA expression patterns. And Rachel and Eric found this in different studies and Rachel found it studying Holocaust survivors showing that as you track these folks over time their offspring were known to have increased risk of PTSD and depression and mental illness, even though they lived grew and grew up safely in America or other places. Why? Turns out because they have markings on their DNA that tell their cortisol receptors, amongst other things, their stress response system to function differently because their ancestors who were in the Holocaust ex were exposed to such severe and significant threat that they pass that down across generations to their offspring, right? So it's actually not just on in the neural wiring, it gets passed down onto the DNA and then tells the DNA, hey, if I am under threat and I have children in a situation under threat and austerity or where there's not enough to go around, perhaps it's very likely nature says, well, your offspring are probably gonna grow up in a similar environment right? So they need to be protected. And we're going to protect them by preparing, by passing on these epigenetic markings, which is the markings on the DNA that tell like cortisol receptors to go up or go down that changes the way we respond to threat. So we just showed in short to bring it full circle, we just showed for the very first time that based on this theory, which has now been replicated in mice and it's shown to be causal and Rachel may very well win the Nobel prize for it. Um, we just showed with a study with Rachel and a number of others at Yale and MAPS that MDMA-assisted therapy in the highly controlled setting of the FDA phase three trial is actually 
statistically and clinically significantly reversing these epigenetic markers on the cortisol genes that are telling our bodies to store the memory of the trauma, it seems, right? Yeah. So the memory is stored all the way from the top to the bottom, all the way from the cells to the DNA. And that powerful safety experiences like that of MDMA-assisted therapy are actually capable of reversing it and reversing it in a way that's clinically significant, which is really fascinating. And we can track it. How does it get, or maybe we don't know the answer to this, from neuronal DNA to something like a non-dividing egg cell? How does that happen? That makes no, no intuitive sense to me. So I think that this is a big question that I don't think we know all the answers to, but I think in short, it sounds like it's a DNA methylase situation, right? But in other words, I, the only the only hypothesis I come up with is that the the thing that causes the methylation and regulation of the neuronal cells must affect all cells, right? Like including that- non-dividing cells. Right. So quiescent cells, cells and dividing cells and German egg cells, right? Right. Because DNA methylase or, and some of the other proteins that regulate the turning up and turning down of our, of our genes are in all cells. Yeah. Yeah. So it, but it must be something ubiquitous and, but it just has an expression in the neurons. So that's kind of interesting. Very interesting. So and that paper, if, I'll, I'll send it over. That paper came out in uh, February of, of this year, for the, which is the first paper showing that MDMA-assisted therapy, these powerful safety states are actually acting like a reverse trauma and reversing these epigenetic changes, which then is directly correlated with clinical outcomes. So the more reversal on this cortisol receptor gene you have, the more people get better, which is mm-hmm. really, really interesting. So there's actually a relationship now where we can start to track healing from mental illness in a more objective way, again, getting back to the biology. And Apollo is just a more accessible tool that's tapping into the same pathway that people can start to access when you can't get access to some of these other techniques. And just to be fair, if anybody's skeptical, yeah, of course, an environmental hit can cause those same biological changes. And those biological changes can still be used as a marker for improvement, whether they are intrinsic to a reproductive biology or not. But, you know, just, just, play in the odds everything i've seen in uh, neuropsychiatry about 60 percent is accounted for on the basis of biology alone <laughs> you know what i mean and so it's, it's always in there it's, it's so to say that it's both is like yeah that's pretty much that's a lot of things it's in in neuropsychiatry Do, does em is emdr something that's by itself efficacious do you think or is it uh yeah, i've yeah, seen yeah. some good results yeah yeah, EMDR works great. Again, it's about how you use it, right? Yeah. So a lot of people have side effects from ketamine because it's not delivered properly. The dose is too high, it's too frequent, and there's no therapy. And so they're not getting long-term benefit and they have more side effects. EMDR, similarly, it has to be delivered properly. Mm-hmm. So EMDR is a bilateral stimulation that can use vibration, visuals, or sound, or all three that alternate between sides of the body that create similar to ketamine, uh, therapy, not quite as powerful, but it creates what we call a dissociated state that allows us to kind of look under the hood, right? Mm-hmm. Be, become aware of things that have happened to us and things that we've experienced that we might've forgotten about and ways of thinking about ourselves that we might've forgotten about. And that is all well and good. That helps to create fertile ground for the therapeutic process to unfold. However, if you don't have somebody there to guide you through that process, who's trained that you trust and to unpack what comes up, then EMDR can often be very overwhelming for people because stuff comes to the surface from underneath and you're like, well, what do I do with that now? Yeah. yeah. And so I think we see a lot of people at home trying to do EMDR with these at-home techniques and tools, but they don't have the support. And so they struggle quite a bit and they don't get the outcomes they're looking for. But then when people use it in practice in the clinic with a trained guide therapist, um, they get they can get really fantastic results. Fundamentally, brains heal other brains, fundamentally. Uh, And I have certainly noticed that EMDR in, you know, therapy, fortunately or unfortunately, there is, you know, the people that are talented and people that are not when it comes to this stuff. And it's it's not just a skill, it's a talent to really do well. And I've certainly seen that with EMDR, with a really talented therapist has great outcomes and a not as talented. 
And, you know, what is that thing that, you know, it's that ability to, to be fully present in and attuned to another human, I think something like that and be highly skilled, highly trained. Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of that. We joke around a lot about, you know, using the phrase like leave your baggage at the door. Yeah. Right, before you walk into a patient encounter. Yeah. You're going to be helping that person carry their own bags and you don't need them. To, you don't want them to carry our bags. So leave your bags at the door. But if you don't realize or or you're not aware of what you're carrying when you walk into an encounter yeah. with a normal person, then they will accidentally wind up carrying your bags and they won't know it. And then you're going to have a problem on your hands. Yeah. Right? And it's going to have like mixing going on that's not exactly good for you or the client. And so, and a blurring of boundaries that doesn't actually result in healing. It is usually a boundary thing. It is usually, you know, the patient activating something in the therapist without them being aware of it. Right. Which is totally normal and it's okay. Yeah. It's just that we have to expect and anticipate. That's where the training comes in. You know, it's yeah. not, people aren't born being good therapists, but we are born knowing how to listen. And we're taught not to listen. So if we practice listening, I think that's the thing that's really interesting about therapy is it's really like this conversation you and I are having right now, we're making eye to eye contact, doesn't matter if it's over Zoom, or if it's in person, we're making eye to eye contact, we're clearly listening to what each other is saying, we're clearly expressing and validating that we're hearing each other, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a back and forth dynamic, where there's no judgment, and we're just kind of getting into it. And that is what sets that frame for the client to just be able to kind of dive in and, and unpack stuff. And if they don't feel safe coming in or they feel judged or they feel like I'm not sure what's mine and what's okay and what's not okay, that creates barriers to the process that just prevent us from doing the good work. Yeah. When I was teaching, I, I thought in terms of, and I, yeah, I know you'll appreciate this. It's not just listening. It's listening with your whole body, something mm-hmm. that people are not accustomed to doing. So things may occur to you, smells, thoughts, things, feelings in your body that are not yours. You you can identify them as not you because you've never really experienced that before. And they'll say, hmm, I wonder where that's coming from. And just listen to all of that in addition to the words and the what's going on in everybody's faces and body. You know, the, you have to be open to the whole thing to do it properly. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that reminds me of that I've always thought fondly about is that Apollo, traditionally, Apollo was the Roman and Greek god of the sun who gave the gift of medicine and music to humanity. And the the temples of Apollo in ancient Greek and Roman culture are some of, they're, they're some of the most holy and ancient temples that still stand. And one of them, the temple of Apollo at Delphi, has inscribed on it maxims of how to live a good life. And the first one, the very first and Know most- thyself know thyself, right? Mm-hmm. Know it is know thyself. It means knowing what's me and what's not me. Right? And people don't appreciate that. That That is a really, and, and frankly, I had to be a patient in therapy to really get it. You have to experience it a bit if you have boundary stuff, which I definitely did. Um, and my thing was when I'd see a patient in pain, I'd want to make it stop, uh, not realizing that I was, I was motivated, like strongly motivated because they were mobilizing my pain but I couldn't differentiate it in at that point in my life. And yeah, it's that's hard. a, it's a hard, it's a subtle thing. It's, you don't, if you, it's like, you got to bring, you got to be the object of, of scrutiny to, to really get it. You, you can't, it's hard to do by yourself. Listen, I had a fair bit of, you know, childhood trauma stuff myself. And if you have that stuff, you got, you got to take care of your baggage before you can help somebody else. Same thing, you know, put the mask over your face before you put the mask on the children. But I want to go back to, we're kind of we're running low on time. So I'm, I'm anxious to finish some of these other topics. Yeah. I want to go back to um, repetition compulsion. I, I don't know what that is. You may have a theory, but, but the one thing I've noticed is people do very little um, analysis or thought about what causes attraction, right? Because I've noticed that people do repetition compulsion. They're not so much repeating the pa- behavior as they are attracted to people and circumstances that are identical to the traumatizing circumstances. And of course, everything will happen again because that person they were attracted to, motivated towards, will oblige them because they're that kind of person. And, and because that person's body is a perfect instrument, uh, I know that that attraction is to someone like the, whether it's an abusive alcoholic abandoning father, whatever it is, uh, there it is over and over and over again. Any thoughts about where that's wired and what's going on with that? 
Yeah, we see that all the time. And I think the the best way that we found to understand it, and again, I don't think we understand everything about it, but the best way to understand it is that the amygdala in the, the fear center of all of our brains, we call like the reptilian brain that detects threat. We think of it as detecting threat and safety is really detecting contrast. So it's detecting familiarity and it's detecting unfamiliarity, newness and not and familiar, right? New mm-hmm. things when we are stressed out become very scary because the they bring uncertainty. Mm. And so repetition of things that give us instant gratification or relief from discomfort, even though they don't serve us in the long run, mm-hmm. like anything from from heroin and cigarettes to the to the Haagen-Dazs and Netflix, right? Mm-hmm. We know that those are not healthy coping strategies to rely on in any way. And yet we tend to repeat them because they're familiar, right? That's all it seems to be is familiarity. What we know feels safe, even though it could be destructive. Right. right? So then let me ask this. And then this breaking is the cycle is embracing the unfamiliarity. Let me ask this. I, I've never really thought about this, but it just occurs to me the way you framed it. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in these repetition interpersonally, something we would call love figures into it. Is that just a separate motivational system that gets enlisted looking for that safety and connection? You know what I mean? Because that's their only model of it in the past is the person that was the perpetrator typically, oftentimes. Are you talking about love or lust? Well, both figure in, right? Um, I, I'm thinking it's love more than lust, I think. Um, like a true affection and a trust. Kind mm, of. No, that? because you know all that is sort of broken down by the trauma in a weird way. It's that, that's why I'm using love sort of in quotes. Oh, you know, I get what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It, it's there. It's maybe it is that closeness and familiarity, and there that the, the, the child was looking for that was ruptured, and they're still looking for it. You know, and that sort of has there's a system in there called, I think we call it love. Yeah, or yeah, and it's and it's also what we often forget is that we are often seeking what we perceive to be love. Absolutely, hundred percent. But but it, but it's a motivational system, I think, that gets. I never see much literature on this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we 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 see this a lot in the psychedelic space because oftentimes when people take an MDMA or ketamine in the safe therapeutic setting for the first time, they turn to us and they're like, especially severely traumatized folks, and they say, "Doc, is this what love feels like?" Oh, interesting. So interesting. Oh my goodness. And our think about that. It's powerful. Right. And our intuition, because these people haven't felt safe in Mm. years, maybe they've never felt true love because again, true love, real love, the love that we know is real compared to the love that might be confusing is, you know, uncertain is that true love is safe. Yeah. That's part, that's part of the, the, the feeling, right. Right. And and I'm thinking about mentally, physically safe. Yeah. 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 No, I get it. the biggest blockbusters this summer with Popcorn Summer Movies on Pluto TV. Experience nonstop action with the first four Mission Impossible movies and Top Gun. Laugh out loud to comedies like Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, and The Backup Plan. With thousands of free movies, Pluto TV has something for everyone. Available on live TV and on demand. Download Pluto TV on all your favorite devices and start streaming now. And, and I'm thinking about the, you know, the other substances that people use and what they're going for, like, you know, heroin, they're going for, they will talk about a warm blanket and m- maternal feelings, you know, not really love, but that sort of, in, sort of safety meets comfort meets no more pain. Exactly. Uh, it's and, like and a carefree bliss. Kind yeah. Of and then weed, weed, now particularly in the concentrations that we're seeing these days is doing some of the same stuff. And activating that saliency meter in the in the amygdala, so everything looks more salient and, and new. And then, but over time, that sort of flattens out, doesn't it? When when you're using a substance, 
It, it does. And I think, and it, but I think that there are different ways of, of it happening. If we use substances habitually. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Where we're relying yeah. and dependent. Oh, no, yeah, absolutely. They, that effect fades. But when we yeah. use them in the psychedelic paradigm where it's use this every few days or every couple weeks, highly intentionally, not every day, we actually see the sensitivity to the effects grow. How How is the uh, regulatory landscape uh, mm, responding to all this? Are they ready to let us do our thing? Are they resistant? Is it impossible? What's going on there? It's it's coming along. You know, okay, I think good. people are, the FDA is moving along. It looks like the MDMA phase three trials were just completed. We'll be releasing a really nice special on that with Rick Doblin next week um, for psychedelic science. Those trials did very, very well. There was an 88% response rate. Wow. Patients with crazy treatment resistant PTSD. So this is really incredible. It doesn't mean 88% got better long-term, but there's 88% responders. I think 67% got uh, into remission after just 12 weeks. So that's really astounding, even better than their prior uh, findings. So now it's analysis, it's data preparing and processing, paper writing, and the FDA reviewing all of that for approval and clearance, which will hopefully be available for MDMA in 2024, early 24. Um, Psilocybin will probably be 25. Um, Although a lot of people are rushing with decriminalization to improve access to care, there are obvious challenges that because uh, decrim is fantastic and that it it prevents the, 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 uh, uh, you know, unjust incarceration of people who should not be in prison for drug crimes. At the same time, it also prevent it doesn't account for the necess- the needs of legalization, and it doesn't allow people like me, who are some of the most highly trained providers, to actually deliver care with psilocybin or any of these other plant medicines because the licensing boards don't respect decriminalization. Right. So only unlicensed medical providers and and therapists can actually provide psychedelic care with things like psilocybin, which actually it can create a lot of risk and exposure because those people don't have a license to jeopardize so they can do whatever they want and don't have to have training even. So we really need to make sure we're careful and not rushing too much. And we actually keep our eye on the prize of let's get this to patients. Let's get this over the hump. We can still mess it up by rushing. Rushing is how we make all of our mistakes. So let's like really focus on getting this through the FDA, getting it to patients and getting it out in the safest possible way like we didn't do in the 60s and 70s. And if right. we do that, then we could see rapid adoption where it's not going to slip back. But until we get FDA clearance for for MDMA or psilocybin, and it's really through the through the other side, it can still slip back. And we can, you know, we can still fall back into a paradigm where we don't have access to these tools anymore because people are yeah. using them. Yeah, this is this a muddy, muddy landscape. So um, I want to just dial back something that uh, you touched on so briefly, and I want to get in a little deeper from the remaining minutes, is I, I forget the words you used, but I think you used uh, something like traditional medicine or, or uh, medicines practiced by indigenous people or something such as that. That is something that fascinates me greatly. And I, I've been trying to... Uh, help create programs, particularly on the alcoholism front, um, where the indigenous practices are up front and the Western practices are sort of, we're sort of following along for safety and, you know, understanding and whatever else. And so do you you have any expertise in this area? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's a very interesting thing to, to try to connect people to you know the traumas of the past the heritage of healing Mm -hmm. connecting to a cultural milieu that they may have lost track of that really can be deeply meaningful for people and then do some psychotherapy and some ketamine on top of that or maybe maybe the you know maybe the indigenous practices include some ibogaine or something and uh, you know we sort of learn how to you know help in that area without interfering with it how's that all going to work do you think it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think we have some examples of it where like the MAPS MDMA protocol is very heavily inspired by indigenous community and indigenous culture and the way that indigenous people think about trauma. And, and trauma- it's different. You, you have to, you have to be in that frame, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a framework of its own. And that's why, that's why it has to be kind of upfront. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think that's what, that's what we do in our practice actually. In our practice, yeah. we put 
all the indigenous traditions up front. It's a very, because they've been doing this for thousands of years. Yes. You know, and people are not new to this. Like we are in Western medicine, which is only, you know, Western psychiatry is what 150 years old. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, these folks have been doing this for a long time. And while we in Western psychiatry are focused on how do we stabilize people after they're totally decompensated and messed up, indigenous cultures take a different approach, which is very preventative. It's how do we understand when we're starting to notice imbalances or when you're starting to not feel good before you meet diagnostic criteria for an illness, before yeah. things really down a negative, uh, a hard path, how do we sense that early and identify it and then give you the support you need to overcome the challenges you're facing, looking at challenge very clearly as a path to growth and self-actualization, self-realization, not a, oh God, why me? Why do I have to yeah. Today, yeah. right? And yeah. it's that little simple, those kinds of simple changes in our framework and the way that we look out at the world and ourselves that make the biggest difference in the healing process because it empowers us to learn how to heal ourselves. Where and yet not uh, a particularly popular kind of psychological frame these days. How do we get a let's just end with this? How do what what's how do we get the health, the overall health of well, I'm not going to lay that on you, but how do we move the frame a little bit back for everybody in that direction? Hey, no, it's a great question, right? And you can you can go big with these questions. I, I love it. You know, <laughs> topics. I think the the main thing is we have to let everybody know. So, indigenous culture treats trauma as universal, right? We all, by nature of being birthed out of our mother's womb, have experienced a trauma of separation right? There's a whole lot more that comes from that too, right? But but, we... but by the way, that's fascinating to me that, that you can say that with that kind of um, certitude, because I've often thought that that was in, in intrinsic in the human experience. I, I'm sure the psychoanal- psychoanalyst had a some of them, at least, let's be fair yeah. for everybody. Psychoanalysis is broken into 30, 50, 100 different kind of frames, but I'm certain that many of them believe this or have had evidence for this. Absolutely. And, yeah. and a lot of the psychedelic studies since then and, and reports have confirmed this, these theories. And it's not to say there's only one way to think about it, but this is just one example is that in indigenous cultures and Eastern tribal, uh, Eastern cultures, they all look at us as all having had trauma and challenging experiences where we were not adequately supported after. Mm-hmm. And that that has left a mark or an impact on the way our nervous system and our body functions mm-hmm. in conjunction with our brains and our emotional health. And so what they say is trauma is the norm, right? Whether it comes from your parents or your grandparents, or whether it comes from something you experience in this life, trauma is the norm. Let's not stigmatize it. Let's not tell you that you should be ashamed or guilty or sad because victim. Yeah, because you're a victim and yeah. life happens to you, right? Let's not talk about it that way. Let's use our words thoughtfully and respectfully. And let's talk about it from the standpoint of we've all had struggles and challenges. How do we work together as a community to help us all accept that that's the case? Like Carl Rogers said, you know, you can't make actual change in your life until you've accepted where you're at at this moment, right? So deeply, I really accept. Yeah. Right. And like everything, like I know where I am right now. I couldn't be any other place because what is, is as much as I might have, might regret certain things or want things to be different. What is, is here's where I'm at. And if I can accept where I'm at, then I can understand where I want to go and how to get there. That is indigenous culture wrapped up and it's not stigmatizing. It doesn't make people feel bad about being unwell or sick or being lesser than everybody else or second-class citizens. It doesn't separate mental health and physical health and emotional and spiritual health. It calls it health, right? That's actually what Hippocrates said. That's what Hippocrates said thousands of years ago. That's what Maimonides said thousands of years ago. That concept has been lost in Western medicine because the financial incentives around healing are not aligned with the actual process of healing. Yep. I think that if you want yep. to know what I, you know, how we I get agree. 100%. Stage, that's how we get to the next stage and we embrace what we can learn from Eastern and tribal preventative practices at with the stabilization, incredible stabilization techniques we have in Western practice, then we will actually be healing people on mass. Dr. David Rabin, thank you so much for spending time with us. Where, where should people go to hear more? You want to hear more, come find me on socials at Dr. David Rabin on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me on Clubhouse. We do some uh, live Clubhouse radio shows. I'd love to have you on to join us, uh, Dr. Dave Rabin on Clubhouse. And and if you want to learn more about our uh, Apollo, apolloneuro.com or wearablehugs.com, 
And you can find me on the Psychedelic Report, which is your single source of truth for psychedelic news on there Apple and Spotify. There you go. Thank you so much. Oh, and the, and the there's a podcast there, right? Is that the podcast? That's that's the podcast. Yeah. Say it again. It's the psychedelicreport.com, your single source of truth for psychedelic news. And you can find that on Spotify and Apple iTunes podcasts. Please, everyone check that out. Thanks, Dave. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks so much, Dr. Drew. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Thank you.